hand, babe, and I'll walk you to school where you'll learn how to live by a new set of rules. Cause we played all our cards, and none left for you. Forgive us, my dear, can't you see? It's the truth that we don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today I am joined by award winning filmmaker, producer, and self confessed documentary addict, Leslie Chilcott. Leslie, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Leslie produced the Academy Award winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Waiting for Superman, which examines America's failing public school system, in addition to the cult rock documentary It Might Get Loud. Her short film Code Stars garnered over 20 million online views and led to her acclaimed feature film Code Girls. Leslie also directed A Small Section of the World about a village of women coffee producers in Costa Rica. Leslie's latest documentary, Watson, focuses on Captain Paul Watson and his mission to save the planet and its oceans. It premiered at Tribeca Film Festival and will be viewable to all on Animal Planet after its various screenings. In my opinion, An Inconvenient Truth and Watson are two of the most important films of our times. So thank you, Leslie, for the incredible work that you do. Thank you. Such an honor. And why do you think I chose From Green to Red as your opening track? Well, when we first met, you told me that you had been um, influenced by an inconvenient truth and you told me that you had a song and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's great, you know, sure. And then you sent it to me and I couldn't believe it and it's a fantastic song, so I'm glad that you did choose it. Thank you. I typically don't introduce people with songs that I've written. I feel that sort of bordering on egotistical, but um, I like to pick a song that really reminds me of that person. And, you know, I remember seeing An Inconvenient Truth when it came out um, and just being so furious after watching this film, which I felt like everyone in the world had to see. I mean, it was one of those moments that something so pivotal had occurred, even in just the making of that film. And, and I kind of felt like, have we even got here? I had no idea. Um, and so I wanted to put that energy into something, wrote this track and then thought, I don't need to record this because everyone will see this and, and it will be irrelevant, you know, within a couple of years. But then it, it, it wasn't. No. <laughs> now, you know, with your latest film, Watson, um, which actually goes deeper into some of the issues covered in An Inconvenient Truth, but specifically the oceans, which we don't think about. Why do you think that is? You know, I've been asking myself that for a while because I'm always looking for ways to sneak in, um, you know, how perilous a state our environment actually is in. And being a fan of Captain Paul Watson for a while, I, I, I thought it would be an interesting time to do this. There are a lot of environmental and eco oriented films now. But as you said, I think largely because we cannot go out into international waters very often. Most people don't have that kind of access or that kind of privilege, nor do we literally dive beneath the surface very often. I mean, there's there's been more people on the International Space Station than have been to the bottom of the ocean. So it's largely out of sight, out of mind. And, and being a lifelong activist in this area, I learned things on this film that I, that I didn't know. And, you know, knowing that more than 50% of our oxygen comes from the ocean, it's something that we really should be paying attention to. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more about Watson later. Um, just an incredible film. But first, I want to understand some of the music that uh, has made up part of your DNA over the years. And the title of this show, the theme of this show is Orange Juice for the Ears, which is taken from a quote by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. And the quote is, music can lift us out of depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I'd like to know, what does that quote mean to you? I think music is 
music is unique to every individual. And a lot of people talk about phenomenal poetry and lyrics in music. And a lot of people just like something for the beat and other people just like it because it reminds them of junior high school or whatever the the reason is. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of layers to that comment. Um, when I was thinking about this, I wanted to just think about songs that that made me happy, not necessarily for intellectual reasons. I'm a fairly serious person, so sometimes in my music, I like things to just sound appealing and remind me of certain times and, and places. And what else is a tonic in your life? For me, nature. I think every modern industrial tool, piece of machinery, invention, all has its roots in nature, whether it's by, whether it's a spiral, whether it's uh, shape, geometric shapes, whether it's anything else. And whenever I find myself lost or struggling, especially with something creative, um, I go take a hike with my dog and um, it, it, it makes all the difference in the world. It's refreshing. It reminds me what's important. Now I have to ask, what was the first song that imprinted on you? All right. Well, I'm almost embarrassed to say it out loud, but this is absolutely (laughs) true. Um, It's a song called Whip It by Devo. And I was pretty young at the time, and it was the first record that I had ever purchased. And I just played it over and over and over And, you know, when I looked at the lyrics, I realized there was some sort of message in there that was fairly obvious, you know, (laughs) attack your problems, whip them into shape, do all these things. But I I, I was really young and I was like, wow, this song can be viewed on all these different levels, but who cares? I just love it. Well, let's take a listen to Whip It by Devo. That was Whip It by Devo, and I am here. It's Orange Shoes for the Ears on Dub Lab. I'm here with Leslie Chilcott, and that was the first track that imprinted on you. I don't know why you're embarrassed about that. That's like the coolest first track I think we've had. Um, most people are like, you know, Daffy Duck's Christmas Miracle or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I'm embarrassed. I just... Um, you know, I think sometimes you, you come to these things and you want to be really earnest and you, you want to say the right thing. And, I, you know, I'm like, that's a song, man. That's it. That's a song that really influenced me. <laughs> There's no right thing. I think the honesty of just answering those questions, that's what makes it magical. And also, I think a really nice way of people learning about you, you know, because it's you can't really lie about these. I mean, you can, but... Um, why? Why? Why bother? Um, so how old were you when you heard that? I'm going to refrain from answering oh. that. I was, li- I was little. <laughs> oh, shrouded in mystery. Uh, okay. You know, being a female director in Hollywood on my age minus 10. Hey, I, I totally get it. In truth, I was quite young, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, doing some sort of math, I figured that out. Um, and and it made you feel what just like possibilities, like there were all these different things it could mean. and Possibilities. Um, the most important thing was I just didn't question it. I just played it over and over and over. And now I look back and I think, what, you know, what, what must my mom have been thinking at the time? You know, because the music was kind of, we were just coming into new wave and, and punk and all of this stuff. And I, she was probably like, that's a very strange song, you know, for my kid to pick. But I was, um, you know, I was playing piano a lot at the time. And so I think the, the synthesizer nature of it was incredibly uh, appealing to me and something very different at that time. Mm. So you were born in Bellflower, California. I was. And what was home life like for you? Was there music in the house? There was music in the house. And my brother, who's 10 years older than I am, had a band. And they would often rehearse in the house. And um, I loved that, you know. And they were playing, you know, they were a cover band mostly. And so they were playing songs that were even older and so I got all this exposure to all this different type of music that I don't think I would have known about. And then, um, you know, I was taking piano lessons, and so there was a lot of music around. Did you enjoy playing piano? 
I did. We had that typical situation where I would always get yelled at for not practicing enough. And, you know, one day you'll regret it. And it's true. I regret it. <laughs> I regret not practicing. <laughs> I think you've gone and done some pretty good other stuff. So, <laughs> um, but you also made an interesting point that actually you wouldn't have thought hearing, you know, Whip It or maybe any of Devo's tracks that Mark would go on to become this amazing film composer. He's such an accomplished um, composer, artist. Uh, he makes sunglasses. Uh, he does just about everything. Um, I hope to have the opportunity one day uh, to tell him how much the song influenced me. Paint a portrait of you as a kid. What, what were you like? How did you like to spend your time? I like to spend most of my time outside, um, which was why playing the piano it was very difficult for me to sit still. Um, I did also really enjoy movies at an early age, but it hadn't occurred to me that that was a, a, a viable career. So I was doing, you know, musical theater, um, a strange combination of musical theater and, and soccer. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> so and I any excuse to go to camp, you know, whatever type of camp it was, I was there. And I know you said you became worried about the impact humans were having on the environment uh, when you were in the third grade. Yeah, when I um, was in the third grade, we had this little, you know, experiment where we could go home and, and try and make our, I'm sure it wasn't called energy efficient at the time, but um, we had this little program and I went around checking the lights and doing all these things. And then I, I took it a step further and, and wrote to, you know, the energy company offered this box of stickers if you went around and did things in, in your house. And my parents had just been divorced at the time and we were living in what I later came to realize was like the singles complex in Cypress, California at that time. And so I went around and tried to make everything, whatever the equivalent of energy efficient was, which is basically shutting off all the lights and unplugging everything possible. Um, and, and so then that's, you get a sticker. And then you get a sticker and, and you could put it in your window, in your front window, which now seems quite embarrassing. But at the time, I was, I was very proud of it. But what I love is you could have just got the stickers. I remember you saying something like you didn't connect that you could have just didn't even occur it. to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it didn't even occur to me. I had to do all the steps and more, you yeah. know, you know, because it's you're, you're at a different age. It's a different time. Um, but I do think back on it now because sometimes we'll make um, teaching versions of some of the the films that I've done. Um, we did that for an inconvenient truth and for waiting for Superman and for an inconvenient truth. Some incredibly high number of teaching guides were guides, excuse me, were were downloaded, and I thought, oh, this is so great, you know, because the film you can easily split into two classroom sessions. Mm. Um, and I think that you know everyone should do that if it makes sense. But just returning to that um, sticker conservation yes. kit, I. You know, I think that is an amazing thing that you were aware of it from such a young age. And even just putting that into practice and sort of implementing those little things, which obviously combined make a difference. Um, I found that fascinating to discover about you and then knowing what you went on to do. So um, I know you went to school in Colorado um, and you talk about the value of great teachers. Were there any teachers that had a big impact on you? Actually, there was a teacher um, when I was living in Arizona, right before Colorado, uh, named Mr. Quas, who was my sixth grade science teacher. And um, at that time, I had kind of already figured out how to get your lessons done so you could go outside and play soccer or games or do other things. And he sat me down and he said, you know, you've already done the coursework for, for this quarter or whatever it was. And he said, but you could be doing a lot more. These experiments can be really fun. Let me Let me show you this. And he showed me a couple of things. And I didn't know at that time, wow, he's an incredible teacher. But he got me interested in science when what I wanted to do is go out and be first out at lunch so I could get picked to play soccer, you know. <laughs> and so he sort of flipped my, um, my whole worldview. And school wasn't just this thing that you checked off anymore. Um, although in, in certain areas, you know, your kid, it still was. But it, I was like, wow, okay, this particular science thing applies to this in my life. Or this is what you do um, with a rusted battery. Or this is what you do with this. And, and he really changed things for me. And I, I, I truly believe um, great teachers are a, a work of art. I agree. Can I ask, why were you moving around so much? 
Why were we, you know, I, uh, I had an adventurous time as a latchkey kid, um, various divorces and things. And my mom was really adventurous. So when one would happen, we would say, let's move here. And when I lived in Arizona, I had been to a leadership camp in Estes Park, Colorado in the mountains. And I said to my mom, you know, it is so beautiful. Let's just move there. And she said, okay. And we just loaded ourselves in the car and moved there. <laughs> wow. What a cool mom. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty incredible. And I met your mom. You met the, her. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Okay. That's such a richer story now. Um, okay, Leslie, so now I have to ask, what was the first album that shaped who you are? The first album? Um, I think it would be uh, a Howard Jones album. I was away from high school um, at some sort of conference. I can't remember what it was. It was, a, it was some sort of contest that I had won the state level. and But it was like a business marketing sales kind of thing because I knew I, even though this did not happen, I was going into business. I was going to start a fast food vegetarian chain or something like that. I wasn't sure. And um, I heard this song called Life in One Day by Howard Jones. And that album, you know, it was the height of the mid 80s. It was the height of new wave. And um, there was a lot of synthesizer music going on. And um, it really, really had an impact on me. Let's take a listen to Life in One Day by Howard Jones. That was Life in One Day by Howard Jones from the album Dream Into Action. And you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dublab. I'm here with Leslie Chilcott. Um, and that was the record that had a real big impact on you. Um, how did you, just tell us again, how did you first hear it? I had won this contest um, at the state level, and then we all got to go to nationals in San Francisco, of course. But once I was in San Francisco, I was, like, out and about and seeing everything. And we had this gathering at the end, um, and they they played Things Can Only Get Better from Dream Into Action. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and I started hearing it everywhere I went. And then I realized that a lot of the other songs that I liked, like New Song from a previous from Humans Live with Howard Jones, was stuff I was already listening to. And um, I was in Colorado at the time, and there's an amazing outdoor amphitheater called Red Rocks. Um, and we would, at that time, I don't think they allow this anymore, but the first, I don't know, 15 or so rows were GA, general admission, right? And uh, you'd have to camp out to get those tickets. So my friends and I would go up there and we camped out for a day and a half just to get one of the first few rows to see Howard Jones. And they would let you in at like seven in the morning and then you would be out in the sun all day. And I remember, you know, being there with my nerdy physics book, studying during the day and like waiting for the concert. <laughs> and it was just such an incredible concert. It's a natural outdoor amphitheater with incredible natural sound, like better than almost any indoor, you know, created amphitheater that, that I've been to. And did Howard Jones in any way influence you to becoming a vegetarian? He's why I became a vegetarian. Oh, seriously? Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And um, I remember when I went to London for the first time, um, they had this chain called, I think it was called Cranks. And I don't okay. think it's around anymore. And I was like, oh, my God, it's so easy to be, you know, a vegetarian here. What kind of things did Cranks serve? Well, probably, you know, bowls of steamed vegetables like it was vegetarian food in the 80s wasn't super interesting um yet and people didn't quite understand you know that you got to mix the legumes with the beans and the, the quinoa wasn't trending then or the frica or whatever it is and i'm sorry to say but british food in the 80s oh was you don't need to apologize flavor horrible <laughs> not that i was alive but i but so i've been told leslie there you go there you go yeah but my mom raised me and my brother vegetarian um, because she'd been brought up in a convent and fed all this terrible food by nuns. <laughs> so we were vegetarian and just wasn't common even, yeah. you know, even then. Yeah, for sure. 
But uh, yeah, he's the reason I first started um, experimenting with being a, a vegetarian. And from that point, have you consistently stuck with it or have you had? I haven't. I have, um, you know, for probably the last dozen years again and for the first time for a very long time, there was a period of about, I don't know, 10 years where I would have meat every once in a while. It's interesting even if you say, oh, I'm not going to be a vegetarian anymore, you're so used to eating that way that it would be very rare that I would have like a steak or a pork chop or something like that. Pork chops are the only thing that I miss very strangely. Um, and I always like once a year I have a craving and I'm like, if I still have this craving tomorrow morning, I'm going to go and have a pork chop. But so far every time it's 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 gone away. But there was some time where I, I called myself, um, even now sometimes I say I'm a flexitarian or a reducitarian. <laughs> Because people are very – if you tell them you're vegan, which I'm not. I ha, I do have um, milk and egg every once in a while. It just sounds so hard for, to people. Mm. But if you say you're a flexitarian and then you don't actually ever eat meat or fish, it's much easier for people is to digest. Is a flexitarian actually a word? Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. I thought – I was very impressed by the fact that you made up two – Terms yeah. <laughs> for your eating habits. I mean, habits. I assume I, it is. Okay. I think it is. I know no, reducitarian is, but I don't know. Only quite. in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you studied business at um, USC. Yes. Specifically the entrepreneur program. Yep. And what did that entail and what were some of your early business ideas? It was a really cool class. It's actually why I wanted to go to USC. I was living in Colorado at the time and all I wanted to do was get back to California and I, um, I didn't really know USC was this big film school, believe it or not. But I, I went there for the entrepreneur program, and it was team taught. And you would get, you know, the founder of Ticketmaster, the founder of whatever would come in and tell these, like, anecdotal stories that were just so valuable. And there was coursework as well. And um, in the second semester, you had to write your full-on business plan with three to five-year tax flow projections and all of this stuff. And mine was called Veggie Burger, Inc., um, which doesn't sound very original now. Uh, but yeah, I was going to start a fast food vegetarian chain. Um, however, my friends were working on student films. I was crashing cinema classes. And um, by the time I was getting close to, to graduation, I knew that I wanted to go into the film industry in, instead. How did you make that shift? Uh, a friend of mine um, who's recently passed, unfortunately, Michael Bertel, uh, said, why don't you, you know, you're taking all these business courses, but all you want to do is like help me with my student films and work on these student films. And we're always crashing classes. And, uh, you know, at that, if you're in LA, the studios will send people out to the campuses and they'll say, would you like to come and watch this film, you know, and give feedback on it. It was like a focus group and I would do those. And it took Michael saying to me, this is clearly your passion. Why don't you uh, think about going to the Peter Stark program at USC, which is a producing program, which I fully intended to do. Um, but once I graduated, I got very lucky, started working um, at MTV and some other places and initially was a producer before I became a director. And then what took you from producing to directing and what did that open up for you? That's a good question. I really loved producing and I, I worked with some very talented directors who let me have, you know, creative input from time to time. And so there was a good creative outlet as well as um, it's quite a learning experience to put yourself in another director's mind and think what would he or she, most of the time it was a he, what would be helpful? What could I anticipate? What needs for this scene or this situation? And I think I learned, you know, the most by thinking, what would this director do? And what would that director do? Um, and then on Waiting for Superman, I ended up uh, directing quite a bit of another unit. We were trying to cover so many things all across the U.S. that I ended up doing a fair amount of the interviews and filming at the lotteries that were in the film. And so after that, I just thought, okay, well, I think I'll, you know, things are, are going more and more indie, and I, I think I'll go in this direction now. But also in documentaries, the role of the producer, director, editor, um, the lines are more blurred, is that right? The lines are more blurred, and a lot of times the documentary is being written in post by a combination of the editor and director and producer. And we're all there to try and carry through the director's vision, but it's so collaborative, and those roles, um, I wouldn't say, are equally important. You always want your director to have whatever he or she needs, but it is very much kind of a three-party project. 
Tell me how you got into documentaries and particularly with that sort of activism spirit because I know that there was a film called Cane Toads that played a significant role in that um, awakening. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Cane Toads is one of the best documentaries of all time. Um, It's by an Australian director called Mark Lewis. And I say it's one of the best documentaries of all time because when I saw Cane Toads, I was like, this is a documentary. I couldn't believe it. You know, it started out all serious. There was this uh, problem with an infestation on um, the sugarcane plants in Australia. And it was one of those great science experiments gone incredibly wrong. And they said, let's bring in these cane toads and they're supposed to eat this particular beetle, I think it was, and it'll take care of this problem. So instead, these cane toads came in, bred out of control, and they were so huge. They were like a foot in width, you know, and there were little girls adopting them as, as pets. Oh and there's, there's this scene in the movie, which, which I detest, but I remember this guy is driving in a combi, like a VW bus, and you can see all these lumps on the road, and he's trying to hit as many as possible, which is horrifying. But they were everywhere. And I thought, this is the most inventive, creative, crazy, like, Uh, documentary that I've ever seen. And so I started out at MTV, ended up producing ads. um, But I really love public service announcements because they were for a cause, as geeky as that sounds. Um, And then when I started seeing documentaries like Cane Toads, I was like, I think I I have to go in a different direction. How did An Inconvenient Truth come about? Um, Because it is perhaps the first and only movie made out of a slideshow. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, it came about because there were a group of us, um, Lauren Spender, Laurie David, uh, Scott Z. Burns, who has a movie called The Report out now, and uh, Ariana Huffington. And I had this little group where we were making these very provocative public service announcements slash TV ads that basically said if you if you drove an oversized SUV, you were contributing to terrorism by the amount of oil and gas you were using. And every time we would have one, and it would be – this was before Ariana Huffington ran for governor in California. Right before it was to air, every time, the network would suddenly pull it. And so we would go to the news and say, this got pulled because of influence of the car companies or Detroit or whatever it was. And we would actually get more attention. And we would get more press coverage, even though it never aired, because it created this kind of controversy. And I found that to be a very strange thing, you know, a strange, a very strange experience. And then um, Lori David and Lauren Spender had gone to see Al Gore's slideshow. And I got this panicked call. In the same day, Lauren Spender and Scott Burns called, and they said, you have to come to this meeting tomorrow. We're talking about Al's slideshow. And I'm like, what? And so I I went to this meeting, and we decided we would fly up and see Al's slideshow in San Francisco. And um, we met with him afterwards and convinced him that that we were the team. This is with the addition of um, Davis Guggenheim, who was working with participant media at the time, running their documentary department. And um, we said, we're going we're gonna to make this thing about you, and, and, and we're the team to do it. And within about two weeks, Davis and I were the only ones who didn't know each other. He knew all the, the same people, and so did I, but we didn't know each other. Within about two weeks, we were on the road following Al around. And, you know, after a week or two of shooting, we were like, this is, this is a movie. You know, it's not just a DVD or an educate. Like, we had to make this into a movie somehow, even though it's a slideshow done in Keynote. So almost in the process, you realized how much more it was than you originally thought. We did. But in all fairness, we never thought it would turn into what it what it turned into. Because after all, we were making a documentary about a former vice president who gives a slideshow about climate change. And what were some of the challenges of making An Inconvenient Truth? I think one of the biggest challenges was literally integrating the slideshow into scenes about Al's personal life because they didn't necessarily dovetail very well. And every time we left the slideshow, you needed a reason to leave the slideshow. And then we would get into these interesting stories on his farm or wherever, and then we needed a reason to go back to the slideshow. So um, we had two brilliant editors, Dan Sweetlick and Jay, who were fantastic in doing that. You said that you took the approach to scare people into the cinema to increase the film's target audience. 
Um, well, it clearly worked. I mean, firstly, in terms of just the reception, but also I was I was terrified and then I was angry. Why did you think you needed to take that approach? Initially, I didn't. Um, we had worked so hard to vet every one of Al Gore's slides. You know, we had this genome of like a thousand slides, which we couldn't put into the movie. And we had these late night arguments until two or three in the morning where we'd be battling. And I would be saying, it's not essential because it's a 90 minute movie. And he would say, no, it's like a house of cards if you take it out, all the arguments. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to take it out because we can't do a three hour movie, right? So um, when Paramount, we were very fortunate, and Paramount acquired the film after Sundance, and um, they made this trailer, and I remember seeing it, and Davis, the director, and I, like, I think I burst into tears because it seemed so, I'm like, it's taking the extreme of everything, and we want people to see this, and it was a very important lesson because I realized that, you know, as a director or producer, you shouldn't necessarily be in charge of your own trailer because other people who are experts at that might know how to best, you know, market your film. And I later realized, oh, it's exactly the right approach. You know, scare people into like, what is that? I need to see it. Is it apocalyptic? Does mm. it affect me? And it worked very well, but it was it was so opposite of the tone of the film because everything had been so carefully researched and crafted as a story. But maybe that's the perfect balance. Exactly. Because you gotta shake off the apathy. And I think the trailer definitely did that. Yeah. Um, you say you're a documentary addict. Um, is it getting to the truth that drives you? I think that, um, you know, starting out uh, working on everything from the MTV Movie Awards to, you know, comedy shows and then doing ads and doing a certain amount of television and a movie, um, documentaries are the... I think the most difficult medium out there. I mean, they're all very hard, especially now, but you're having to write the story in your head based on actual events and not manufactured things. And um, I mean, some documentaries have recreations and that's, that's different, but I think that it's a very pure form of filmmaking that ultimately is, is very satisfying because you bring these narrative and scripted tools to a documentary. And once you have the privilege of, of telling someone's truth, if it were, it's um, addictive and it's very satisfying if you can get it right. Do you feel that you've always got it right? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I would say with Watson, you know, the film that's coming out um, next month, uh, Captain Paul Watson, there's been a lot of projects about him and I really worked to get his character correct. And I think in that case, I got it right. But I, I don't think I always have. Well, and it's it's an impossibility in some ways because it's almost like you have to find a way of distilling an essence of someone or something so that people can understand it. Yeah, that's right. But obviously the complexities are always there. But, you know, based on the films that I've seen that you've been either directing or producing, um, I think you're pretty masterful at it. <laughs> well, thank you. Um so now moving on to the music you would send into space. Ah, so this is an interesting question. Um, I would send uh, some whale songs. There was a guy uh, called Roger Payne who um, has already had the privilege of doing this. Um, he recorded an album of whale songs, which actually became a hit um, back in the early 70s, Songs of the Humpback Whale, and they produced a record and um, I actually interviewed him for Watson. And he's this um, incredible human being who has spent a lifetime studying whales, but he was one of the first to discover that humpbacks um, sing a song over and over and over. And that song will spread from community to community throughout the oceans. And sometimes um, it will evolve and another verse will be added. But whales, you know, humpbacks worldwide will sing this song for that season. And Whoa. I find that to be incredible. And it's interesting, you know, you've had a fair amount of uh, movies about space, like Star Trek, that have included whales. Um, and so maybe it's just a, a natural fit. But he had the opportunity um, to send his whale recordings up into space in the hope that they will be discovered. So now that we have slightly better recording technologies, um, I would love to, to update that with some of the latest songs. 
Let's take a listen to specifically the Tonga whale song. That was the Tonga Whale song, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years. Um, I'm here with Leslie Chilcott, and you specifically recorded that yourself. Yes. This particular one, I think, that I sent you, I think my underwater cameraman, Christian Demetrius, recorded. We were trying to see what it would sound like if we recorded directly into the Red Monstro camera and to see if it was, you know, good enough quality. So I believe that's the one that we recorded straight into the camera. But it is such an incredible experience. We were free diving and we were filming for Watson. Where were you? In Kingdom of Tonga, which is moderately near Fiji. Um, And it is illegal to scuba dive with the humpback whales there. So you have to free dive and um, Christian would have to go down. And Paul Watson had told this story about whales and space, which I won't ruin here, but you can see it in the film. And I knew I needed to get underneath humpback whales. And there's you know, tons of amazing underwater cinematography, but not much literally underneath the whale. So we went there with that goal. And when we were looking for them, sometimes we could hear them and we would drop a microphone into the water to see if we could hear the males singing, you know, so we would know if they were nearby. And sometimes you would just go in the water and listen. And it was just incredible because they could be miles from you and you could still hear it. Amazing. So tell me more about Watson and when, how you had the idea to make that film? Watson is a documentary about a guy called um, Captain Paul Watson. He was the youngest founding member of Greenpeace when he was 18. And um, a few years later, he got booted off the board because he wanted to engage in more um, direct, nonviolent action. And they thought his techniques were too radical, basically because he wouldn't compromise. He's like, Uh, whales, sharks, turtles should be saved no matter what, and we can't compromise. And this is like a planetary emergency, and and we have to take care of this. So I always look for a different way to tell a story about the environment and nature. And um, he's a hero to my husband, believe it or not. We were at a dinner party, and he was asked who his hero was, and I was much surprised to hear him say Captain Paul Watson. Um, And then sometime a very short while after that, I was going to a sustainability environmental event, and we had to take a bus up to the event because there was no parking. And, you know, like high school, I had walked to the back of the bus, and I took a seat, and um, we were all dressed quite formally in black. And this woman got on the bus wearing white. She was only one in white, and so, you know, she stuck out. And she was walking towards the back of the bus, and I was thinking, oh, God, is she going to sit next to me? And she sits down, and she said, hi, I'm Farrah Smith from Sea Shepherd. And I said, you're kidding. You know, Captain Paul Watson is my husband's hero. I've admired him, you know, for a long time as well. There have been lots of shows, Whale Wars, other documentaries. I said, but how come no one's made his life story? And she said, I don't know. Why don't you make it? You know, let's do it. And that's literally how it started. And that was completely serendipitous. It was completely serendipitous. And then it's also one of those things where, you know, I had about 12 documentaries I wanted to make at that very moment. And that just felt completely right. Um, Paul also was, um, he had two Interpol arrest warrants. They're called Interpol Red Notices at that time. So he was being allowed back in the U.S. and he wouldn't be able to travel. And I knew that there would be a guy who's basically been on the ocean for 50 years trapped on land. And I thought it would be a very interesting time to make a film about his life story. Would he be cooperative? Would he be going stir crazy? Would he leave the country or um, would he get deported while I was making the film? So it just seemed the perfect time. Did you have such an appreciation for the oceans and the role in sustaining our environment before starting the film? I would say yes and no. Um, I'd been very fortunate. I had been scuba diving um, in Australia and Mexico and had barely scratched the surface, pun intended, not intended, I'm not sure there. But um, (laughs) I 
had an appreciation and I knew how important the oceans were, but I didn't know about a lot of the new studies that said how important phytoplankton was, um, how important whale poop is. I'm, I'm very proud there's whale poop in the film. Um, <laughs> that was the biggest challenge, actually, sneaking that in there. And I learned a lot. I Even studying this for a long time, I did not know the extent of the interconnectedness. And um, as Paul says, why do we call it planet Earth? It's almost 71% ocean. You know, it's planet ocean. And that I didn't really get. Was there anything else that you found particularly surprising in the making of the film? I'm just pausing here because it was such a learning experience. Um, But what was particularly surprising is the incredible diminishment of sharks and whales. I also knew that we were a whaling nation, you know, in in the 1800s. I didn't realize the extent dent and sheer numbers of whales that we were killing uh, to get their oil for energy because this was pre-petroleum. And, you know, it seems like our our source of energy has been an unending problem for us. And, you know, I reread Moby Dick, which is such a fantastic book. And I know everyone says that, but it's, it's nice to reread it and see what a masterpiece of horror it is. The thing I found surprising before seeing the film, I didn't know a lot about Paul Watson. Um, but what I'd heard was that, you know, he was kind of controversial and there were some tactics that he employed that were questionable. So I was sort of set up to be like, you know, I love this guy, but he's a bit of a rebel in like quite an overt way. And I didn't find anything about his approach controversial I just, everything he said made absolute sense. And it was like this voice of sanity and reason and everything else was absurd. You know, and even with Greenpeace, getting chucked out of Greenpeace, I think, you know, what he says about just getting frustrated that people wanted to hang banners and take photos. And if you're there and you're watching seals getting clubbed or whales getting killed, why aren't you going to try and intervene? So I just found him incredibly empathetic and you know I literally came out of that film like so buzzed because I'd seen something so inspiring and and I don't know it's I feel like it's kind of rare these days to see something that like shakes you awake and you're like well there's someone out there like that doing this kind of work and it's so beautifully shot and the audio everything about it is just that I couldn't find a single single thing that I don't think is perfect about that film. Wow, I really appreciate you saying that. That that means a lot. He's very bold, um, confrontational. Um, you know, he's very quick on his feet. You know, people will say, um, but you're an eco-terrorist. And he'll say, you know, I, I never worked for Monsanto. I'm not an eco-terrorist. You know, I mean, <laughs> he, he does have a lot of great responses to the questions he's been asked thousands of times over the year. But, but what's important to me is it's very rare to meet someone who cannot be bought or swayed or, well, if you just do this – that might not be so great, but the upside is this. And he's like, absolutely not. There is no compromise when it comes to saving a whale, a shark, a turtle. And he's right. Where can people see it? People can see it on um, Animal Planet. In the U.S., it is airing at 8 p.m. on December 22nd. And I believe it's going to air in about 30 other countries on or around the same date. And what do you hope people take away from it? I hope people take a break from eating fish. I know it's simple, and I don't like to be preachy, but our oceans need time to recover. Um, and I hope that they they go out on the ocean more. They go out and, and experience it. And we really all are very, very interconnected. And water is the very essence of life. We're made up of water. And I think it, I think it's good to revisit that. What is the song that you would like to have played at your memorial? This is a tough one. Um, I've come to this realization only in the last 10 years. Um, Memorials or funerals, they're not for the person that died. They're for the people who are still alive. And you're either having your own closure or you're celebrating that person, but it's not really for the person that died. So I'm 
I want to save up a little fund and I want a party. I don't really want a memorial. Now, I understand people need closure and the value of a ceremony and a funeral. And so maybe this will suffice. Um, But again, back to the 80s, you know, one of the first songs I was listening to was this song by Scandal called Goodbye to You. And it's about something else. It's about a relationship. Um, But uh, I think it would be great to play that. This is part of Leslie's party playlist, party memorial playlist. Goodbye to you by Scandal. That was Goodbye to You by Scandal. And I'm BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. Um, and that was the track that Leslie Chilcott would have played at her memorial as part of her 80s Goodbye Leslie playlist. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> um, have you ever thought about what film you would show? Oh, that's a good question. So many to choose from. Maybe 2001. And who would direct the movie of your life? <laughs> oh, my. Um, let's see. Would it be a documentary or would it be a narrative? It would be a narrative. That would be much more interesting, I think. Uh, let me think about that. Uh, Stephen Frears. Okay. Why? I've been a massive fan of his since I started studying cinema, and he's done everything. Um, He did these really kind of edgy films in the 80s that were lower budget that just really made an impression on me. And then um, he's done massive orchestrations and very detailed crazy films. And then he's done silly films. So I feel like he could do anything. I think it would be a challenge to to make a movie about me. I don't think I'm all that interesting. So I think I would need someone like Stephen Frears to do it and give it a dark side. Be your final collaboration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and who or what inspires you? Oh, um, that's tricky. Not just because I just made a film, but I find um, a lot of people I've worked with inspiring. I find Al Gore inspiring to this day. He's still traveling the world with a laptop giving the slideshow, you know, and he won't give up. Um, Captain Paul Watson is incredibly inspiring as well. Um And every dollar is a vote. And I know that's sort of a a platitude and it sounds a bit cheesy. But people who continue to live a true life with every choice that they make, I find um, particularly uh, inspiring. Maybe that sense of relentlessness. I think it's that sense of, yeah, sense of relentlessness and purpose and um, trying to stick to your guns while learning new things. And, you know, I I was working with a project once with Ariana Huffington, and she said what she had to say at this meeting, and then 10 people went around and said what they said, and she was taking notes. And she was able to still stick to her guns, yet adjust her argument, so to speak, based on what everyone's concerns were. Because we all want to have these great skills skills at speaking, but it's uh, it's actually more important to listen. Just like Jim Henson, he allowed for everyone to be right, but not equally right. There you go. Yeah. Hero of mine. <laughs> On the watch. I love oh, it. yeah. Um, do you feel there are always many documentaries in the making bubbling away in the back of your mind? There are many um, fighting a war in my head. (laughs) Um, I'm on a series at the moment, and I literally can't do anything until May. And I'm already thinking, okay, what is it going to be? And this morning, it's a new rock documentary. Last night, um, it was something about uh, politics. So it constantly changes. What is the album that you would pass on to the next generation and why? There's a Peruvian singer who's quite well-known in Peru um, and not well-known a lot of other places. And her name is Ima Sumac. It's spelled Y-M-A-S-U-M-A-C. And she had uh, arguably a four or five octave range. And she could double her voice. And she could do 
bird sounds and all these different amazing things that I didn't really think uh, were possible. And it's very rare. Um, I only discovered her recently. My husband, Bernard, who's German, um, had been playing her. And I was like, what is that? And it just defies description. As you can see right now, I'm kind of searching for the right words to describe her. And I think she's just incredible. And I would, uh, I'd like more people to know that there's much more, everything's fighting for airplay right mm -hmm. now. Everyone's fighting. There's a lot of great songs, but there's much more out there. And just when you, you hear this incredible vocalist, male or female, that's honed their voice into this amazing instrument, you have someone who's just like fucking indefinable like she is. There you go. You swore. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Leslie and asked me off air if she was able to swear. So. I was holding back. So, you know, I just like yeah. So I think um, her greatest hits. Okay. So we're going to listen to Ima Sumac at the end um, and specifically a track called Chuncho. Is that? I think so. Yeah. Chuncho. Correct. Um, what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the year choices? Oh, God. I am not sure that there there is one. I, I We had the 80s theme going. Um, I don't know that there is one. Yeah. Which I, I have to say, I don't want to be neat like that. You know what I mean? Like, tidy. I, I think you should have musical influences from, like, the full gamut. And what is next for Leslie? I am doing a uh, something very different for me. There is no cause in this whatsoever. I'm doing a um, six-part limited documentary about uh, the late 60s and Charles Manson. There you go, guys. She does everything. Covers every area of human interest <laughs> um and what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and the work that you're still to do these are such deep questions Beatty. i don't take anything lightly yeah you, you can see by my response to your film i am a all or nothing kind of person <laughs> i hope that no matter how technologically advanced that we get that we don't I think there's an illness that happens if we get separated too far from nature. I entirely agree. And there is no better person to play us out than Ima Sumac, who literally sounds like a wonder of nature. So this is Chuncho. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 